The upshot of that is friends and medicine. Yeah. Meaning? The strength of your personal connections dictate the health and happiness of your life. I won't do anything that doesn't align with that purpose. Wow. Now, I'm sorry, buddy. Say that one more time. I will not do anything that does not align with my purpose. Therefore, everything that you do, welcome to humanity. There, there might be an occasional you know, trip over. Huh? But in the main, everything that you do is an extension of what you have decided is your purpose. Yeah, because I, there, there is work that I get offered to do and I go, no, that doesn't align with my pur purpose. Huh? So that, some people would say, well, you're doing yourself an injustice by not taking the money. I mean, well, why would I want to take the money if I feel bad about it? like a hollow and it doesn't serve my purpose. What legacy can I leave behind? What impact can I have on any person I talk to? Is it positive? Because that's what I want to do. I want to leave people, whoever I come across with, with positivity, the feeling of happiness and joy and optimism because they came in contact with me. Hey, you've just joined yet another episode of A Journey with Bernie, and I'm so grateful to have you with us on this beautiful morning at Kangaroo Point here in, uh, here in Brisbane, although that doesn't mean anything if you're listening to us from Europe or America. Anyway, hey, welcome to Australia. Got a fascinating uh, guest this morning, and what delights me is that when previous guests are actually recommending other people who they believe fit the objective of our podcast. Now, I just remind you, I think we're all on this journey of becoming a, a more loving human being. And of course, hey, welcome to humanity. Some people are more down that pathway than others. But I do believe that in essence, most human beings would love to be that person who can give love, be love, feel it as part of their great experience of life. And part of that journey, of course, is being able to generate your own love for self by the, the inner happiness that we stimulate within our own being. And this brings more meaning to our lives. But when Magnus Olsen, my last guest, said, I've just got to meet Jeff McKeon, I believed him, and I've only spent 45 minutes with Jeff so far, and, and I know that we're in for a treat. Jeff and I, as it turned out, we've got a few things in common, and for those that have been advocates of a journey with Bernie, you know that I recommend strongly the episodes with Joel State and his father, Keith. Well, I couldn't believe it this morning when I actually discovered that Jeff and I both know Joel very, very well. Jeff actually more than I. And he was very, very aware of Joel State's journey from being diagnosed with a cancer that resulted in his ultimate passing only four months ago. But he actually got that rescheduling around about six years ago, told he had about three months to live, and then he had this incredible journey over the last five years of discovering what life could be as he waited for the tap on the shoulder. Well, Jeff McKeon is far more than just a friend and an advocate of Joel's state. Jeff, I'm going to bring you into the picture here. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm fantastic. Mate, and guess what? We also have cricket in common. We do. So let's get it out of the way. Okay. How did you see day one, Nagpur, Australia versus India? <laughs> Our boys were very nervous. I think they were incredibly nervous. It oh, was mate. tough watching. I think I think they I think they read the press too much and may have invented too much of themselves yeah. around the around the pitch because the the India opener made it look pretty darn pretty easier easy, yeah. by the end of the day. But hey, listen, you coach cricket. Yeah, yeah. so I'm a I'm a coach at uh, Turnbull of Junior Cricket. Yeah. Um, as my son now he's 17 and is transitioning into to grade cricket. But um, yeah, I've been a coach there for a couple of years. And, I have a funny, funny question around around coaching because I, I too loved coaching cricket and, and uh, had a, a period of coaching at the MCC Indoor School at Lords. 
I was a professional cricket coach in Kampong Utrecht, the Netherlands. Nice. <laughs> well, they did really well at the at the World World Championship well, in the T20. That, 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 that well, was good to watch. Well, they've done well over years, just as a developing yeah. developing country in the in the game of cricket. But I was also one of the inaugural coaches down at the Greg Chapel Cricket Centre down there, there at Albion. So yeah, loved the whole whole coaching journey. As you coach kids in the game of cricket, what would you say is central to your coaching philosophy? Like like, like as you go about the task of helping children to become better cricketers. What is the essence of your philosophy of coaching? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I could start really easily because I, I got roped into it. Um, <laughs> I love, As I all love volunteer cricket. dads I, do. I love cricket, um, but I never actually played any formal cricket well, growing up. I okay. grew up out in Laidley um, in, in the 70s. Yeah. And, and, you know, my teammate in, in school cricket was a bloke by the name of Andy Bickle. So no a one, beautiful human being. No one wanted to face him in the nets yeah. or on a cricket pitch. So, yeah. you know, I do remember being hit in the face as a wicket keeper. So that, you <sighs> yeah. know, I, that's it for me. I'm yeah. done. This game's yeah, dangerous. Yeah, 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 but yeah. we played every summer. It was ev- All us kids got together, played cricket. Yeah. Um, but when my son started having a love of cricket, he always liked hitting them, but he decided he was wanting to play cricket. And I went, oh, well, I've never played. I'd better hang around and see what's going on. And somehow I got roped into being an assistant and still didn't know what was going on. It, you know, didn't know the name of all the positions and just, but I loved the game. Yeah. And then one of the coaches stepped down and said, we need a coach and no one else put their hand up. Yeah. And so I suddenly there you was are. a coach. There you are. There you are. And yeah, so yeah, then yeah. I went, okay, I better invest in this and better better find out what's going on and make sure I'm up to date and, and do some study. My, there were two great things or two things that I focused on. One, Number one, with teenage boys, underarm. Every, every coaching session I started, every year, the first thing, first meeting, boys, this is a tin of underarm. I expect you to put it on before you get here. <laughs> oh, underarm and, deodorant. Yes. Right. I thought you were teaching no, me not the Trevor Chapel. No, exactly. Right? <laughs> not the underarm bowling. The underarm under your arms. Right, okay. The deodorant because teenage boys. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so yeah. I, my philosophy was always yeah. turn up with it on when you leave before you get in the car. Yeah. But it was then teaching them the how to be a responsible adult. So I would That's talk to them mate. about, yeah. please, thank yeah. you, yes, no. Yeah. Um, opening a door for their mums. Yeah. Mate, great for stuff, woman, mate. anyone, even their younger sister, great set stuff. that standard. Yeah. Because when you take those standards yeah. onto the field, yeah. then you play better because you've already raised your standards. Love it. As a group of, of teenage boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then it just developed from there where, yeah. where we yeah. just focused on learning to make sure that they if they lost it was okay yeah. i wanted to, them to be great men yeah cricket just happened to be the byproduct mate you know seriously and i mentioned this i think i mentioned it even in the last podcast but when i study peak performance in sport and we start to look at great teams i always believe that one thing they all have in common is that the coaches were more than just a, 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 a skill enhancer. They were a father figure. They were a coacher of life through AFL football or a coacher of life through netball. I mean, that's the way that so many of those great Bronco players speak of Wayne Bennett. Yes. You know, I've heard some of them speak uh, about the same way about Chris Fagan, the current coach of the Brisbane Lions, who's raising these young men to become, you know, probably AFL favourites this year, you know. So that's a fascinating message that for all of those volunteer sports coaches out there, you're probably saying, well, how much are you actually coaching life as, as well as the, the sport itself? And Because it, it, it wasn't about winning. It yeah. was about how can I help develop these, these young kids into young men. Yeah. That was yeah. my message. And yeah. it just happened to be the vehicle was 
doing it through yeah. cricket. And, yeah. you know, sure, we wanted to win. And, yeah. sure, the boys knew the score. And they, yeah. if you ever want to know how to, uh, how, whether a teenager will survive in life is they can do math on a cricket field. Yeah. They may not be able to do math at school, <laughs> but ask them what the run rate is or how many runs they've got to get per over. Yeah. They can do math. They That's all the that math. they need yeah, in life. Yeah. yeah, so it's all probably contextual. <laughs> Very much so. You know, when I was coaching my lad, uh, James, who's now 28 years of age, but I was coaching, I think they were six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, down at Sandgate Redcliffe uh, down there. My fourth rule, my first rule was something, we run between the wickets like sneaky buggers. Yes. My second rule is we, when we bowl, we aim at their toes. We're only interested in classic catches. <laughs> that was my third rule. My fourth rule is great players look after their mum. Yeah, see? That was my fourth the rule. Message. And I would get a mum report on the Wednesday when the mums came to collect their, 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 their boys or their, their children from, uh, from training. And the mum report determined the batting order. Uh, Mrs. Cotty, uh, how, is Jordan helping you with the dishes? Yes. Oh, yes, he's been very, very good, Coach Kel, you know. I think half the parents made it up just so they get their son further up the further batting up. order. <laughs> but for me, it was uh, put, your, put your clothes away. Yeah. Don't just kick your shoes off, yeah. and, you know, and it's your kit, it's your responsibility. Yeah, yeah. It's not your mum, your dad, your Lovely, sister, mate. your brother, Lovely. the dog or the cat. If Lovely. you forget stuff. That's your fault. Yeah, so it's that yeah, accountability yeah, and yeah, responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, Jeff. Um, oh, I do want to get into having a chat about Joel and and Kieran and Keith and that wonderful state family, which has somehow penetrated our lives yes. um, in a most glorious way. But I think it's unfair to our listener if we just can't give them a little bit more background about you. So I'm going to ask for the uh, five dot points that give us something about the background between naught and 53. You're around about there, I can tell, okay? Norton 50. Give us five dot points that tell us about Jeff McKeon and who he has been and who he has become in the game of life. I think... Growing up in the 70s in a country town, a little place called Laidley between yeah. Ipswich and Toowoomba, uh, there was great times there. Idyllic yeah. childhood without those responsibilities and care of the world. Yeah. My biggest issue was my my old man was an alcoholic yeah. and that had a massive impact on my childhood and development. Elaborate on that, please. Uh, very similar to a lot of people of that era and that that time he was a hard worker he was a bricklayer it was a hard hard life a tough life but he would go to the pub on the way home and that dictated whether or not we'd see him that night because he obviously had his own challenges in life but as a kid you don't understand that yeah you know we lived in we lived one block from the local pub from his watering hole and we would walk down on a friday night in our pajamas as young kids and say good night Wow. Who's we, mate? How many brothers, sisters? Older brother. So he's three and a half years older than me. Right, okay. Um, But yeah, mum would bring us down to the pub in our pyjamas to say goodnight. Now, when you're a child, you don't know that that's that's not normal. Yeah. But... you know that, but a lot of kids were like that. A lot yeah. of kids grew up around pubs in a little country town. Yeah. But then, when in the the teenage years, by then he was he was sort of drifting out, and and you know, mum and mum and dad officially were separated. But it was you know, he was in and out of our life. But at what age were you when mum and dad separated? Oh, uh, the the it was it was about eleven. I still remember sitting wow, in, okay. in the window yeah. looking outside as they were sitting in the car in the driveway having that conversation so yeah. at the age of 11 I have a clear memory and then we're into uh, in and out of our life in and out of our life you know but it was pretty much at that stage it was okay this is not going to work and that yeah. was, but there was a critical moment when dad had moved out and then financially we were just in a terrible space oh. that was that was where for me at about 15 that was the moment uh, my life was not heading in any direction. I had I had no direction. Um, I hid everything by being the funny guy. I was always telling jokes and trying to make people laugh. And I was, had a big voice and a loud voice. Yeah. Hence why we had to adjust the mic today. I have a very <laughs> projected voice, some people have said. Uh, so I always compensated by trying to be laughing and having a great time. But that was hiding inside um, and I was about 15, just into grade 11, and I sat down and typed out a suicide note to my mum. Wow. wow. 
that was that moment in my life. That's yeah. that you talk about a sliding door moment. Old school typewriter because we, yeah. you know, didn't have a word processor back then. Yeah. Wrote it out, and I still remember crying on the page, yeah. going, "Okay," because there's a there's a sense of relief when you get to that point when you've you've written it out. You, you've actually documented. I'm I'm saying goodbye. Yeah. And my mum was sitting in the room next door to me, you know, a little oh. country t- house and, you know, a little Queenslander, and she was in the lounge room next to me. And that was the next day was I was going to do what I was going to do. The very next morning on my way to school, and I used to, to, to stop in with my best mate, John, and his mum looked at me and she said, are you okay? Now, the words, whatever the words were, but she, she looked at me. Now, she saw me every day. Yeah. So she normally saw me, would normally see what, but there was something about me that morning. Yeah. And she gave me a hug. And to this day, her hugs are the greatest things in the world. Like truly a life-saving hug. Yeah. And I broke down and I started crying. Yeah. Because I, someone had seen my pain for what it was. Yeah. Rather than Jeff's the guy who's always laughing and telling jokes and, you know. Yeah. That moment kept me going. So she saw your pain. But, but, but to what degree could... Could one conclude that that simple act of love, the hug, was actually a rescue moment? Well, it's. Could you say that? At the time, you can't. You don't understand. But but there was a sense of being seen that my pain was validated because my mum was in pain, my brother was in pain. You know, like yeah. I, I'm talking that at you know 15, he was 18. I mean, we were both drinking heavily. Wow. As teenagers. Yeah. Which was really sad because yeah. we hated our dad's drinking, but we were numbing the pain. Yeah. You know, at 15, yeah. he shouldn't be drinking. Yeah. You know, at 18, my brother was in a terrible state drinking heavily. And, and so we were trying to numb the pain. Did, did you have any sense then, even at 15, that your existence was at odds with what life could be? Yeah. Like, or, or did you... Or did, or did you believe that this is life and therefore it's not it's nothing much therefore it can end what was your what was your sense of what life could be while you're going through all this pain it was pretty limited view on where i was going or what i was doing and and i let's just fast forward a couple of years to that i finished grade 12 yeah had no idea what i wanted to do with my life yeah had didn't get a score good enough to get into any uni. Couldn't find a job because in a country town there were no, norm, yeah. you know, no jobs unless I wanted to go and work on a farm. Um, so I just did grade twelve again. I repeated because I had no, no. Your goals. choice on that, or you, yeah. you wanted to do that? Well, because I, I didn't know what else I could do. But that's I, a very proactive decision. Like, but it, it wasn't because when I did that, yeah, to to get a better score I did less work the second year <laughs> got the better score you got the better score because I probably you know I'd only done it 12 months yeah. ago I remembered it yeah. did less work yeah. got a better score yeah. got in uh, accepted into university had no way of getting there had no income had no car had no transport had no I don't know how to do this did, did any of that situation ever ever bring you back to that that moment of desperation that you felt at 15 and you you thought you might do it again there were a lot of dark days there there were a lot of dark days you know it's yeah but by then my brother was he was in brisbane working and it it, when you talk about moments and yeah you know this is only moment two (laughs) but when you talk about moments my brother was in brisbane Okay, when I finished school, got accepted to uni, had no job, had no form of income, had no transport. I've got to, okay, on the phone to my brother, can I come and stay with you? Yeah. And he said, you've got two weeks. If you come in, because it's a shared house in a, you know, Queenslander at Orkinflower, and I remember it clearly, and he said, you've got two weeks. If you don't have a job and don't have money to pay rent, I can't afford to cover your rent. Yeah. So you've got to get a job. Yeah. So I moved from a country town into the city. Yeah. Um, and my first job was as a cleaner at 
David Jones at Tawong. Wow, yeah. After hours when everyone had finished. And, yeah. I, and one of the saving graces there yeah. was that the um, people would put out uh, in the canteen, because back then they had the canteen, and yeah. they would leave out a plate of food for us cleaners. Yeah. So that was dinner. Yeah, well, yeah. So I, you know, that was my first ever job just as a cleaner. I just had to get a job because I had to pay rent. Otherwise, I had to go home. But what I hear you saying is, is that your brother laying down that expectation or belief or hope for you actually became a force that began to rescue you. Yes. His acceptance of you into the household was perhaps another key moment or key you know key belief key acceptance this was a a way of turning things around for you yeah because it also the share house i moved into there were two my brother and and another another guy michael they were both studying yeah uh and so there was this this environment of improving yourself yeah sure 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 Although yeah, okay, we, okay, we, we okay. still had okay. all the other stuff, but it was See, that. that's interesting too. Yeah, because yeah. they were studying, and yeah. I wasn't studying at all. I wasn't doing anything. Just they weren't socialising. Plenty of that oh, going yeah, that on. Was so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, come on, that's uni. That's the, I mean, I I went to to orientation week, but I wasn't going to uni. Cause yeah, we were at Orkinflower, Saint Lucia was down the road. So but I, despite the social opportunity, you said there was a plenty of dedication to their studies, and you actually saw that dedication oh, to improvement. To maybe, yeah, by just being around that environment. Yeah, okay, but great. the the cleaning job didn't last very long because yeah. I. There wasn't enough money. It, it, you know, it was part time. So I, sure. I kept looking, kept looking. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, I stumbled uh, of all the randomness of, of of life, working for Wallace Bishop, the jeweller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the reason I ended up getting that job is I could talk. Yeah. And that's all they were looking for: people who could communicate, someone who could talk. And that was my that talk was and skill. connect. Yeah. With customers. Could, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. that was something I could do. They yeah. could teach me how to do. You know, I just did little watch repairs and basic repairs in in their in their branches. I wasn't a qualified watchmaker or jeweler, but I did that stuff, and then I eventually got selling. Yeah, and then I came under the under the the um, influence of of a guy who mentored me. Yeah, sure. Um, his name was ah, David Edmonds, yeah, and he yeah. said to me, "Jeff, you turn up to work like you don't belong here. Yeah, go and buy a suit." Go and get a briefcase. I don't care what's in your briefcase. Yeah. Turn up to work like you're meant to be at yeah, work. Yeah, And that was the father figure. See, my dad wasn't my father figure. Okay, wow. So he was a father figure, yeah. a strong role model who yeah. started teaching me life lessons. Yeah. Let's turn this around a little bit, okay? Let's yeah. stop there because that's a heck of a story in itself. But let's say we've got some listeners and they've got a similar scenario with a, a, a teenager, a young man, a young girl, right? Given your experience, what do you say to them as parents? What do you say to them as mentors? Single sentence stuff, Jeff. And you're saying to them, you must, if you've got a child in this situation, please do this. What's this? What would you say to them? Find them the mentor they connect with. Yeah. Not you. It's not about you as the parent. It's about you. Yeah. As a cricket coach, I can tell my son to do something. He's not going to do it. Yeah. Another cricket coach tells him, he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why he has his own batting coach. Yeah. Because dad, dad couldn't teach him. So yeah. he, had, he responded really well to that other batting coach. Yeah. I could tell him and see, but I couldn't. There was not the buy-in. Sure. He buys in from someone else. Same thing. When you've got a child who's in that space and, yeah. and the parents aren't connecting or they're not they're not giving them that pathway, yeah. it needs to be someone that, that that child looks up to or is inspired by. That's that mentor. That's that passing on. Sure. That's that legacy that I talk about now. Yeah. yeah. Is about how can I help someone else by sharing my story, yeah. which may be a... a a pivotal moment for someone else's life. Yeah, 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 yeah. My house is now that safe house for other children. Yeah. I was going to come to that because as a result of your experience, I, I can only imagine how that's impacted you as a parent. So if you were to draw upon one, two or three significant differences, you as a parent compared to what your good parents may have tried to give you, and in different degrees of success, how 
what do you now value as a parent inspired by your own childhood experiences? To do the things that I didn't see my parents do. Sure. So let's talk about them in a positive sense. What yes. are they? Well, so the the one thing was to not bring the brain damage into the house. Yeah. Whatever work I did, my job, my wife and I set up a rule that whenever you came home, you had five minutes. Right. So vent, carry on, whinge, bitch, moan about whatever your day was like. Yeah. But you got five minutes. And we both held each other accountable for that. Yeah. She's a nurse. Um, I was in sales. We had five minutes. We didn't want to bring the poison of a, a bad workplace into our house. What then follows after the poison? After you have the discussion, what do you then do? Oh, well, then we just, then it's life and connection with each right, other and okay. talking and, and, and being, being present in that to moment. each other, yes. focusing with each other. Yeah. But, but, and this came from my wife. And, and so, <laughs> really interesting. But we went very early in the piece, we went out to a meal with friends. And we, three of us, the three of us worked together. And my wife, I think it was maybe our third date or something like that. Sit <laughs> what down. age are you? Uh, 23. 23, and, yeah. And we sit down with the, as three friends, and I'll name them Grant and Lisa, because yeah. they're still friends to this day. And we sat down at the dinner, dinner table. And then as we left, and I said to, to my now, now wife, I said, Tab, what, what was the, you know, what dinner like? She said, oh, it was terrible. All you did was talked about work. Right. And so then we made a pact, her and I and Grant and Lisa, because yeah. particularly Grant and Lisa, because we all work together, was yeah. five minutes. You had yeah. five minutes you were allowed to talk about work. Other yeah. than that, you weren't allowed to mention work in the sure. conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. My yeah. wife's a nurse. Yeah. There was a, another time I came into the room and, and there was a bunch of her friends and they, all of them were nurses. Yeah. And they're all bitching about work. Yeah. I went, stop. Yeah. Not in this house. Yeah. And they looked at me like I was a foreigner. I went, yeah. no, no, we have a rule here. You get five minutes to talk about work. Yeah. And then I want you to shut up yeah. and stop talking about work yeah. and talk about everything else because you spend 38, 40 hour plus hours of work at, at work. Stop talking about it. Yeah. You're like, and sure. so that became a rule in our, yeah, our yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Give us a second rule, mate. What's it? Not oh, a second rule, a second no. thing you do differently that's so different than your childhood. The, the one thing my wife and I are really conscious of when raising our two children, we, we now have a 17-year-old boy yeah. and a 15-year-old girl, we made a conscious decision not to swear in front of them. Okay. Now, Why? I came from the son of a bricklayer, <laughs> okay. right? I, I grew oh, up... Fucking my, hell about yeah, that one. Uh, yeah, right. So everything, right? That was my childhood. Yeah. And, and in the local pubs, the language of the local pubs, yeah. the violence of a local pub, yeah. right? I grew up in that environment. That yeah. Some of the things I saw as a kid, you should not see. Yeah. But that was the world. So I went, no, no. Not in this. Yeah. The the probably the most important thing, and this was a, a really clarifying moment. Both of our children were really small. My daughter had just been born, and my wife called me out because we'd given ourselves permission to call each other out on behaviour we didn't like. Right. Particularly if that were behaviour was similar to what our parents, you know, because we spoke at length about the stuff we didn't like. Right. And it was a conscious choice, and she called me out on my drinking and said, are you going to keep doing this? Yeah. And that was... Did she give you an ultimatum? No, but she, she was really clear and... and that it wasn't and, acceptable. And it, it was a, a metaphorical slap in the face. Yeah. And, and went, it's got to stop now. And it's, that was that moment that that was an altering moment in our, our relationship and my parenting. That's a good woman, mate. Oh, like a, I'm married right. Okay. Now, I, I, call, uh, I call what you're describing, we're only playing with words here, yeah. okay? I call it treasured love. <laughs> when I use the word treasured love, um, in my world, I have, uh, I have my, my children as treasured loves. Yes. Um, I have uh, key family members as treasured loves. Yes. You know? um, so in, if, we, if, we, if we transfer that term to you, you know, you've got your wife, you've yes. got your kids, you've yes. got maybe other family members, right? But my question is, 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 what was it about both of you that enabled you to, 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 to understand that you had this prospect and possibility of becoming 
treasured love. You called her before you married the right girl. Yes. How, how did you know she was the right girl? What was the ingredients that enabled you to fit Yeah. Well, as that couple? So both of us didn't have good examples of parenting. That's a that's 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 fascinating. And we could, so, so what did that stimulate? Well, what it meant is that we were open and honest up front. Right. We 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 made the decision to communicate clearly. Yeah. Without bias, without yeah. any um, uh, toxicity or any and like we, I don't even know if we verbalised it. We just we just were really straight up of calling it out early. Yeah. Of being open and honest and transparent. Yeah. About what we were thinking and feeling because we both had really poor examples. Yeah. Um, from our parents. So yeah. we didn't want to replicate that with each other. Yeah. And that was when we went early in the piece about calling out each other on behaviors that we didn't like. Yeah. And that makes it really, it also makes it really challenging, Bernie, when well, it, you realize you're replicating something from your your parents. You don't want to do it, but it's a behavior you've learned. It's learnt behavior. Yeah, I get that. But then, you, then by being so open about it, and maybe even a need to express it, because there's still pain there, isn't it, yes. from the childhood. Yes. So here's, forgive me for saying it like this: two people who who who've got enough pain from their childhood Correct. coming together, having the beautiful opportunity in a safe environment to actually express it, right? The pain comes out like a, the lava out of a volcano, so the volcano gets a little bit cleaner and clearer, yep. and yet you've shared it. It's a shared experience between the both of you, and fascinatingly, when you actually start to become really interested in each other, you're actually going to start to talk about how do we avoid creating that pain for yep. the other people that become our, our children in our lives. I can see how 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 that honesty openness and transparency no matter how it's inspired but i can see how that brings unity oh look and that was the thing but but don't get me wrong we made so many mistakes i'll put my hand up for lots of them but you know because i had my own demons to work with yeah let alone what my wife had to deal with we we each had to go through that growing process but when we had us had safety together yeah. It allowed you to explore that. Yeah. If the relationship was creating internal friction, yeah. we would not have created the space to heal. Yeah. And so we would have replicated the cycle because we were guard you know, if you're guarded or protective or you're not transparent with each yeah. other, you would create you'd just replicate the conflict because yeah. especially if you grew up in conflict. Yeah. You know, one of my biggest childhood memories is my dad coming home drunk and screaming and yelling. Yeah. Saving grace, my, my dad was never violent. Yeah. You know, but yeah. that was, a lot of my friends, that wasn't their experience. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, sure. I always saw that I was grateful for that. So, so who are you when your kids come home from school? What's your advising to, to your own children about, um, you know, school life? And, and, and the meaning of, of, of it all? Uh, how do you see... How, how do you respond and welcome and embrace your children as they go through this, uh, this world of secondary school education? So here was one of the other standards we set, which is yeah. uh, something that I wanted. If my children were awake when they were young, yeah. I wanted them to come to the door and wave me goodbye every yeah. morning. Yeah. Every day I went to work. So they knew where dad was going. Dad was going to work to provide a lifestyle for them. Yeah. That's what we committed to do. So they would come out and wave goodbye. My wife would bring them out if they were awake. When they were younger, as they got older, they, you know, you've got to come out, wave goodbye. I've now gone full cycle, full circle, where my son, 17, has got his peas, drives his sister to school. So we're waving them goodbye. Yeah. And my wife held me accountable the first day. She said, are you coming out? But I'd already, already was up walking to the garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. come out and wave goodbye. Yeah. Because... I'd ask them to do that for me. Now it's my turn to do that for them. And the importance of all this is? Because you never know when it's going to end. Wow. You don't know. You don't determine the expiry date on your birth certificate. Yeah. Imagine, like, we talk about these we, we uh, natural fears of shark attack or, or drowning or that. No, people die in car crashes every single day. I yeah. was in the motor industry selling cars. You hear the stories. People don't make it home. 
Young right. sixteen-year-old died last week. Swan River, but but shark attack. But, but that's no, no. Shark attacks are so rare yeah. compared to the accepted norm yeah. of car crash. Yeah. You go even further is that over three thousand people a year commit suicide in Australia. Yeah. Of that, eighty seventy-five to eighty percent are men. Yeah. Right. We don't have that fear over those things. So for me, it was a conscious decision. If something happened, I know that I've said, I love you to my wife and my children. Yeah, yeah. And vice versa. Yeah. But, you know, so we are, are very open and we always say, we love you to all of our family members. Yeah. And that is something that we've brought. So now that I have a 15 and 17 year old, they say that to each other because they see their parents modeling that. Yeah. And that's all they've grown up in. Yeah. Now, they disagree and they have things they don't enjoy. Yeah. But they communicate it because we've given them the language yeah. to communicate with. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I talk about with my kids is coming out of school and because my lived experience, I have three friends, great friends that have been with me my entire schooling life. Yeah. They're still friends to this day. Yeah. That's a magical thing. So I, I call them my tribe. So all you've got to do is come out of school with one or two good friends. And that's been a good school. Because what you realize when you leave school, you're in this big world and there's so many choices. There's so many options. Whereas in school, you were stuck within a social experiment of a constricted group of people. Love it. Real world's not like that. Mm. There's 8 billion people on the planet. Mm. Who said you have to stay in Australia? Mm. My 17-year-old... He's going to England at the end of school to go and play cricket for yeah, 12 months. Yeah. Who knows what journey he's going to go on. Yeah. And, and that's his pathway. My daughter's going down an academic pathway. Yeah. And all I say to her is, is school, come away with a couple of good friends. And when you're in the big world, once school's finished, you'll realise your, your close friends light you up. So what I'm hearing from you is, is, is your expectation as a parent from school is that the... Uh, their life experience, their social experience is as important, if not more important, than the academic pursuit. Yeah, so if you're going down an academic route, that's fine because it's a series of checkboxes along the way. Yeah. You have to balance that with life skills. I know some really incredible people who are, have difficulty communicating. Yeah. Academically, they're, they're wonderful but their communication skills are poor because yeah. people didn't hold them accountable to saying, look, it's all well and good being the smartest kid in the room, but you need to share your message in everyday language. Mm. And that's some of the work that I do now is about mm. communicating in everyday conversation and language, yeah. uh, you know, about the, the world that I work in now and the science-backed world that I work in. How do we communicate that to the person sitting opposite you? Sure. In language that they'll understand. Yeah. It's not that's about... Empa that's empathy, isn't it? Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's caring in the way you share yeah. the message. Yeah. Whereas sometimes... and there's, So think about it. You go to uni to be lectured... No one ever wants to be lectured. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not how most people learn something. Yeah. You know, 60% of people are visual learners. Yeah. A lot of people have to physically go and do it to learn how to do something. Sure. They can't be shown. Yeah. They can't watch it, read it, or listen. They actually have to physically go and pick up the tools and do it themselves. Yeah. That's how they learn. Yeah. And, and understanding that is, is for, for my children, is saying to them, there are endless choices. Whatever you do... Just do it as to your best of your ability. Yeah. Do it well. I'm still hearing. I'm still hearing this, this this undertone that for you, you view their educational experience that it's fundamental. You used the word tribe before. You you spoke about their social context. You you haven't actually been tap dancing about how much maths they learned or whether they got a seven for English or how, how is their, their physics and their chemistry going. It's almost as if, for you, school should offer at least this introduction to life and people. You're laughing. Well, because, okay, so my daughter, um, who's the academic, yeah. can produce a spreadsheet and tell you how many A's and B's she got last yeah. year. What's more important for me, because that's her self-determination, yeah. yeah. that's what she's doing. I yeah. don't ask her to do it. I, yeah. That's what she wants yeah. to do. Yeah. My job as her parent is to make sure that she has the social skills 
Jeez. that allow her to thrive in in the real world. Yeah, that's my job as the parent. Yeah, my son, not academic. He's the communicator. He's like yeah. me. He can yeah, talk yeah, to yeah, anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to work with yeah. him on that. Yeah. So I'm working with him on his business acumen and understanding how the world operates because yeah. he's the kind of guy. Uh, he, we know we have no idea where he'll end up. Yeah. We just know that he'll he'll end up in a job doing yeah. something. And go, oh my god, how did you go that? Yeah. And he'll go, ah, hear me out. I've got a plan. That this is his favourite. What so. age is he? He's seventeen. Well, so man, he, he's entitled to do that. And, and he says, "Hear me out," which means he's got this idea. Let's talk about it. Yeah. And that's how we ended up. We're going to the Grand Prix in six weeks' time. Yeah, you know, yeah, hear me yeah. out, Dad. Yeah. Right, but he'll he'll plan it and. And it's it's about making sure we equip equip them with skills yeah. that allow them to relate. Because relate, connect. You go back to that tribe. Human beings are wired for connection. Yeah, we just live in a society that's sometimes different to that. But yeah. ultimately, it's our connection to the individual. Yeah, there's a great book that just got released this or last month. It's called The Good Life, and it follows the Harvard Longitudinal Study, where they studied men from Harvard and Boston. There was about 500. studied them and their families now for 85 years. Wow. A longitudinal study. Yeah. There's all these data points, 85 years. They're into the third or fourth generation. Yeah. So they're following the great-grandchildren. The, the, the upshot of that is friends of medicine. Yeah. Meaning? The strength of your personal connections dictate the health and happiness of your life. You know, that, that, that's, the same, that, that's one of the same criteria that comes out of the study of what is called the blue, I think they call them the blue zones yes. or the blue communities. The, yeah, there's six or seven communities around the world where everybody's living to past 100. Yep. And they just talk about the importance of that whole social connection and formation of community between people as one of the key ingredients yeah. for longevity. Well, that, so and, and that's where we dig into those social connections. So I know my happiness and my um, well-being as a person comes down to the strength of the relationship and, and my marriage. Yeah. But treasured also, ones. That's yes, a Bernie treasured or, or, one. Also knowing that I have these lifelong friends. Yeah. But I have these five core friends. In yeah. my circle, one yeah. is the, one of those lifelong friends. Yeah. So that's forty-seven years we've been yeah. friends. I have three who are twenty-eight years, yeah. and I have another one who's twenty-five years. Yeah. Now, those five men are the key to my well-being as a human, because those five men we can openly say, "I love you." Wow! Not just mates, because uh, blokes tend to communicate by saying, "Yeah, you, my mate," which yeah. is our way of saying, "I love you." No, no, I've conditioned them that we talk about how much we love each other because I don't want to be in a situation where I lose one of them and we've never expressed it. Yeah. So we circle back to Joel. Yeah. Right? Go back to that message with Joel. Joel Joel's was, state we're Joel's now talking state. about, yeah. Episode number eight out of interest. For those of you that haven't listened to to that episode, let me just say I think you're missing out because there is just something magical that happened in in that discussion. Joel State, you knew Joel from, uh, is it Smiling for Smitty? Smiling for Smitty. Smi- as a, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, you, you used to ride with Joel? Yeah, so Joel and I rode from Townsville to Brisbane. Yeah. So 1,600 yeah. Ks. Wow. And we were doing that, raising money for cancer research. Yeah. And Joel and I connected on a really deep level because that was the magic that Joel had. When you got to meet Joel... If you were part of his tribe, yeah. you connected so deeply to him. How many years did you know Joel? I only knew him for four years, you know, when, or five years. It was that well, sort of time. Let's like. understand that because what we're talking about is the four years and he's already been diagnosed. Yeah, oh, yeah. His, yeah, yeah, so you didn't know him before he no. was diagnosed. It'd be very, very fascinating to speak to people who knew of him before the diagnosis. And then knew of him after the diagnosis because then we have a, a, a great feel, don't we, for what, what did this diagnosis that you have three to six months to live, how did it impact you? How did it 
inspire you to see life differently? What was your experience? Cut to the chase, pal. What made Joel State such an outstanding human being to you? Because he and I were able to say, I love you at such an early stage in our friendship because our connection went that deep. That was the clearance. So the, the term I've, I've read and, and I've used, and I, there's a story, um, motiv- uh, mortality motivation. When you see your own mortality and your own life, it will make you question what's important. And if what's important to you is love and connection, well, what are you going to focus on? Love and connection. Yeah. All the other stuff means nothing. If you've been told you're going to die, what are you going to do to change your life? Yeah. Because you've got this moment in time. Mm. Now, while training for that ride in 2019 to ride from, from Townsville to Brisbane, and it's coming up to the anniversary in a week's That's time. That's right. I'm no, actually no, going to the dinner. Yeah, but, but for me, the um, it's, it's three years right. since I had a heart attack training for that ride. Wow. I'm out on a Sunday on my bike getting ready to six months bef- before the ride. This is pre-COVID. Yeah, and this is 2019. Yeah. 17th of Feb, 2019. I go out for a ride. Right. I'm heavy in training. I'm, I'm getting ready and, and I'm, I'm pretty fit. I go out on this Sunday afternoon. I go, I've got no energy. I can't go down the road. I've got no power. And then I started feeling a really low-grade chest pain. Mm. Now, as an endurance cyclist where we do these long-distance ones, we can do 200 plus k's in a day mm. everything hurts mm. every part of you like you I, i've done an, i've done townsville to brisbane before mm. you, i have to take my wedding ring off because your hands hurt from holding onto the handlebars for eight ten hours a day so i can endure pain but i had this two out of ten maybe three out of ten chest pain but i couldn't ride up the hill i'm going what's going on and then deep in the back of my mind i remember hearing something going that might be the signs of a heart attack and then you start going Am I having a heart attack? So when you start that questioning, yeah. I'm rolling back down the hill. Yeah. There's three questions, and because I'd read somewhere, did I live? Did I love? Did I matter? So you're 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 having this this painful episode, and while you're having it, you're actually mindful of asking yourself those questions. You actually yeah. thought that this might actually if this is the moment be the tap on the shoulder. Yeah. yeah. If I'm going to die here and now, like rolling down a hill on my push bike, yeah. if I'm going to just, it's gone, will my wife be okay? Will my children be okay? Have I lived a life well enough to have made sure I created a legacy? And I don't mean legacy about how much money they've got or stuff like I mean a legacy of love. This is, I've always, yeah, it's the legacy of the love I left behind. Will I have lifted them up in their life? I have a bold question. Yeah. A risky one. Hmm. Which one of those three questions is the most important? Did I love? Oh. Right? Because if, if, if I lived and I mattered, but there was no love, what's it, what's it all about then? Yeah. You know, if I was on my own and I lived and mattered to some people, but there was no love because I didn't have that connection, yeah. it doesn't matter then. So you know? l- l- let's just wind back a little bit, right? Yeah. Oh, you're having this experience, you're getting a tap on the shoulder, or at least in your own mind you are, but actually physically you were. Yeah. To what extent has that moment then lingered? Now, I, I use the word lingering because I'd imagine most people occasionally think, oh, one day I'm going to die. But I actually don't live that on a daily basis because no one's tapped them on the shoulder and given them a, a deadline. Joel got a deadline. Well, in his own mind, he was told three to six months or whatever that he had to live. And somehow his response to that allowed him to live uh, five years, six years, et cetera, et cetera. To what extent did your tap on the shoulder, has it lingered so that it affects and impacts you even now? Well, it's not just lingered. It's become the lens of everything I do. Hold it. You're saying... You wake up each day aware that death is potentially imminent. Yeah, because once you've experienced it, you question your own mortality. You understand that that could happen again. You understand that 
you thought you were fine and nothing really mattered and then you have that moment and suddenly you've questioned everything. Now, for me, I had good answers. Imagine you got to that point in your life and your answers weren't good. Imagine, did I live, did I love, did I matter? No, you've been a you've been a horrible person you've made you haven't helped people you've been dragging people down you're really negative you're toxic blah 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 imagine getting to that reflection point and knowing that you weren't contributing yeah imagine how that would feel that would feel either you would go i've got to change this completely or oh let's go to Joel yes what impact did the same experience that you're describing for self. Yes. What did you see it having on Joel? Who was Joel becoming? Who was Joel as a result of his circumstance? Well, that becomes the, the clarity around love and deep connection with people while he's still here. Wow. You know, I, I, I know. Say that one more time. My question was... As a result of him becoming acutely aware of the possibility that death could take him on any day, such a person, we're talking about Joel State, but it could be any one of us, if we thought that way, the impact on him, what did you see? Love and deep connection. That's what he was after. He didn't surround himself with anyone who was not going to be in that space. So the the people who were around him and, and at his funeral, it was a, a, a it was so bittersweet, but it was such a beautiful outpouring of love for for a, a man at thirty seven years of age, yeah. like uh, just this massive outpouring. And 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 um, Rob, uh, one of our friends and a Smitty writer, got up and he just said, "Joel had magic." Wow! Now isn't that a legacy? What a beautiful legacy to live behind. So for me. When, when I had my heart attack, that's where my mindset went, well, what's my legacy now? What am I going to leave behind? What impact? And it goes back to a book I read many years ago, Seven Habits of Highly Effective oh, God, People. Oh, God, it gets such a mention here. By Stephen Covey. Huh? But, but in one of the chapters, <laughs> begin with the end of mind, yeah. he actually says, stand at your own funeral. Yeah. What are they going to say? Yeah. So that's my guiding. What legacy can I leave behind? What impact can I have on any person I talk to? Is it positive? Because that's what I want to do. I want to leave people, whoever I come across with, with positivity, the feeling of happiness and joy and optimism because they came in contact with me. Can I just stop you there? Because I'm looking at you. See, see, dear listeners, you don't get the, the, you, you get the opportunity to listen and you hear the words. See, I get the opportunity to see the face that accompanies the words. I, I get to see all the, all the non-verbals here. Um, so I'm asking you, Jeff, what do you want written? You're standing at your tombstone. Now, people might find this morbid, but I've just read Tuesdays with Maury. That's, by the way, folks, that's a wonderful, incredible book. I've read that three times. Tuesdays with Mori by Mitch Album. It's about the same topic that we're on now. But you're standing at your tombstone. What do you want it to read, Jeff? Love. What's your purpose? To share love and kindness. It, when you, we ask that your purpose, is that something that is alive in you, that purpose, every day? Yes. I won't do anything that doesn't align with that purpose. Wow. Now, I'm sorry, buddy. Say that one more time. I will not do anything that does not align with my purpose. Therefore, everything that you do, welcome to humanity. There, there might be an occasional you know, trip over. Huh? But in the main, everything that you do is an extension of what you have decided is your purpose. Because I, there, there is work that I get offered to do, and I go, no, that doesn't align with my pur purpose. Wow. So that, some people would say, well, you're doing yourself an injustice by not taking the money. I went, well, why would I want to take the money if I feel bad about like and hollow and it doesn't serve my purpose? I'd rather do without the money than actually do something and then feel like, why am I doing this? I don't like this. Going back to when I walked away from sales because... 
sales I, in the car industry. In the motor industry. Yeah. At, 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 when we went into COVID lockdown, I, I walked away and said, I can't do this anymore because it no longer aligns with who I am as a person. You got a little story there, I suspect, that made you walk away. You've been in the car industry. I just did my maths for a number of years. Yes. And then somehow, all of a sudden, around COVID time, something happens and you're walking away because your purpose is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer and you're now feeling misalignment. Is that a word? doesn't yes. matter. Good yeah, word. That's a good word. People understand what we're talking about. Yes. All right. Yeah. What's the story? Well, I, after my heart attack, you then start questioning everything about your life, everything you. about what are you doing. What are, I'm in a management role. I'm being paid well. I've got career success, longevity, um, accolades, awards, everything that makes you go, oh, well, that's a good – oh, you're doing really well. But internally, I'm going, this is not me. That little little voice – well, that little voice had suddenly been kicked up the ass by having a heart attack going, you're not listening to who you are. You've just done what society says you should do to make a living. Wow. This is what... You're and, playing the game. And once you remove the should, you're going, well, actually, what do I want to do? So I start studying. I start reading. I'm consuming a huge amount of information. <laughs> and there's a pivotal moment. And, and sometimes you need these pivotal moments. There's lots of them. But you need these moments in life. And I, I go into someone who's senior within where I worked and said, I want to run. This is in the motor industry. I'm no, just trying to give just, it context. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to run a program with our teams. It'll be free. I just want to talk to them about stress regulation, about deep breathing exercises, helping them deal with anxiety and the pressure of the job. Um, I can do teams of three to five. Uh, it's what I'm studying. I'm actually studying this now and it, it won't cost the company a cent and it'll be done and I can do everyone. And and you believed it could add value to, well, we the, know. to the business, to the yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. And said person who was senior said, who do you think you are? You're not qualified. Get out of my office and go and do the job you're paid to do. Right. But you were a manager. Yeah, I was senior manager. A senior manager. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. And so, successful. So, so, let, so he must have been the owner, was he? Details of, yeah. Irrelevant. Okay, gotcha. But it's that big FU moment, right? And you need that catalyst sometimes in your life to go, righto. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. So sometimes it needs that friction. You need, and you look at people's stories about they were knocked back. And I, and I don't want to compare myself to, to anyone that's, but it's, it's like you've got to have the knockbacks. Any successful writer gets knocked back. Yeah. Any successful sportsman gets knocked back. Yeah. It's not all beautiful and they run into it and everything's easy. No, yeah. it's, you've got to overcome the adversity to, it's like, how do you get stronger? It's you've got to overcome that adversity yeah. and keep moving forward. Yeah. I went home straight after that. It was Melbourne Cup Day 2019. I remember it quite clearly. Yeah. I went and had lunch and sat down with my wife and said, right, let's work an exit strategy. What did she say? Oh, she said, well, this is what you've been frustrated with for ages. She, she knew, knew that challenge and that was the thing. You know, When I talk about earlier about I married well. Yeah. It's not a married into money or prestige or all of that. I married the right person who supported me in uh, one of our my biggest decisions as an adult. Yeah. And she backed me. Yeah. Now, who wouldn't want someone like that on your side? Yeah. 100% commitment. Yeah. I had kids in private school and a mortgage still. And she's gone, no, no, I back you. As we, as we move towards a... A conclusion because I always promise my listeners here that it's all over in an hour. All right, all right. <laughs> we might have to have round two or three. <laughs> <laughs> but as we move towards, please describe the effect of that decision on your life. Get personal, Jeff. How are you a different being as a result of listening to your own inner voice and deciding that you could no longer compromise yourself, play the game that maybe society, the, the Mori Schwartz from Tuesdays with Mori calls it the, 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 the societal culture, the paradigms of success. Go to university, use your degree, create your own company, go up the company tree, build empires, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
and in Maury's words, maybe become very unhappy. Maybe some things about it can bring some temporary happiness, but he would not talk about it as, as a catalyst for sustainable happiness. You make a decision that you believe can give you some sustainable happiness. Has that decision been validated, vindicated? How has your life shifted? And cut to the chase. 100% the greatest decision of my adult life, apart from marrying my wife and choosing to... Two great decisions, man. Choosing to ask her out, (laughs) you know. That that decision is now transferred to, I now measure my success based on the number of hours I spend with my teenagers because it's finite. Wow. Wow. That's, That's me. I now look at, I'm there when they go to school and I'm there when they come home. Yeah. I can work hours around them and before and after and all of that, but I am conscious because I am there. My son has got one year to go at school. Yeah. Now, I could still be at work, working full-time in my career, but I would miss all those moments. I would miss all those hours with him. And there's so many examples where you see that that disjointed process between the teenager trying to find their way and the parents who are working. And when the teenager's left to their own devices, quite often there's a lot of rebellion in that. Mm. Um, And it's, I want to be there and help guide them. Yeah, I don't need to rebel. I just they just need to know that they can come and ask me those yeah. big questions about life. Yeah, but what I'm hearing here is because you are truly, authentically dedicated to your purpose, love and kindness. Then by living that, but by choosing to be that every day, it must lead to a strategy, an action, a preference, a behaviour of wanting to be there for your treasured ones. Yes. Yeah, it, it's it's a byproduct of it. So it's not even it's not even a discipline. <laughs> it's it's just a, a natural part. Here's an interesting question, and I I know that money is probably not a high high importance. It might be something that you still value. But I'm interested. Are you earning as much as you were when you were in the car industry? No, not at all. And it doesn't matter because what I've got is freedom. Because when you believe that the money is the driver, you keep chasing the money. When you believe hours and time are the freedom, you do a whole pile of other different things. Do you believe that you could become such an attractive person? <laughs> I'm not talking about your physical look. I was going to say, you, I'm you, talking... you're, you're up close and personal here, Bernie. <laughs> I'm talking about your energy, yeah. your enthusiasm, your your presence, yes. uh, the branding um, that you that you give to people that, in fact, you could be worth more than so that's what you were. The Go shift. On. Well, when we talk about the shift, when I talk about what I do now yeah. and what I'm doing now. So today, you and I are recording this podcast. Yeah. Later on today... I have a conversation with a professor of neuroscience. This afternoon, I have a conversation with a psychologist in London. No, I don't have clinical issues, although I might, but we're talking about (laughs) Sometimes we never know, mate. (laughs) I'm now transitioning into writing and being an author. And this year is staging and preparing to start writing those books. Books, And so far, there's a a number of books already slated and and planning is underway for not just one it is this is my rest of my career and the rest of my life so i had to kill the clone yeah i had to break my identity that was invested in what i did when i worked at toyota yeah because i never thought i would be an author yeah but now because i've done that work and that change i now feel comfortable saying to people yeah i am becoming an author yeah and my success as an author has not driven by money. Yeah, I can do this for the rest of my life, which yeah. is what I intend doing. Yeah, of just being an author. Yeah, to be able to say that meant I had to kill that old identity. Yeah, because that was not the real me. Yeah. This is the real me. Yeah. I love books. I love reading. I love being around books. It's yeah. it's what I'm known for now. Yeah, and when you build a following of people who are like minded around the world. Yeah. That's what you attract is people into that world who are going to support you on that goal, that dream, that vision. Yeah, I get you, mate. I get yeah. you, mate. I'm so, I get you. I'm seeing it. I'm hearing it. It's um, it's such a, a beautiful existence and state. 
Buddy, five minutes, five questions. Sure. I don't know what they are. <laughs> First question is, you said that at Joel's funeral, they described him as magic. Yeah. Inspired by that incredible circumstance of his impending death and he passes away, but people saw him as magic. In a single sentence, what does magic look like? In a person, it's that ability to forget about judgment and share your joy to another person. Yeah, that's it. That's it. To become a more loving human being, one thing a person must do on a daily basis is? Love with nothing in return. Buddy, um, Magnus Olsen is coming to Nepal with us. When are you coming, buddy? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Has he shown the seed with you? Yeah, no, no. Right? So there, there are some bucket listings for me, yeah. but no, Nepal's not there, but there's some other places. The French Alps for me on oh, my bike. Yeah. Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. And it'll just happen to coincide with the Tour de France. No, because it's too crowded. <laughs> you want to go on the other, uh, either side when it's yeah. not as crowded yeah. so that you can... But that's I'll I'll be riding at some stage, writing and riding. Yeah, on the French Alps somewhere yeah, in the not yeah. too distant future. Hey, Jeff McKeon, what a what a, what a joy this has been, eh? Did you it's enjoy fun, the mate. experience? Yeah, it's yeah. Awesome. I I I just love these explorations of possibilities in who we can become, and maybe you know maybe the recognition that a lot of what is talked about in a journey with Bernie episodes, I start to wonder whether it's about the art of becoming or whether, in fact, we already are it to to some degree and we just have, we've just bought into this other game or other culture that, that, that keeps on interfering with our possibilities of, of who we can, of who we can be, you know? Do you see it? Any there's, the same way or there's, similarly? There's no right or wrong way. Just be you. Yeah. Just be the best version of you. That's it. Yeah. But I've got a feeling the best version, I don't know whether we're even aware of what no. the best version of ourselves can be until maybe, dear listeners, you consider you know, some of the wonderful things that Jeff has articulated um, in this episode. Hey, buddy, thank you very, very much My for pleasure, being a part man. of... This journey. What's it called, Jeff? Journey with Bernie. A journey with Bernie. <laughs> Cheers, Jeff. So appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Well played. Cheers. Hey, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode of A Journey with Bernie. Dear people, I loved it. I just love the continuous learning journey that our dear guests offer each and every one of us. Of course, you may be after contact and connection details or references to books or other podcasts or educational sources that we talked about. They're all in the podcast notes. Do go there, folks. Now, there are some of you that have rung me about joining our forthcoming trips to Nepal. We're leaving April the 6th and September the 22nd. Imagine you and I walking to Everest Base Camp, even discussing some of the content of these episodes. You do have another opportunity, and that's that beautiful, iconic pathway to Gokyo Lakes via Ronjo Pass or Shola Pass. Imagine being in the presence of the mighty Himalayas. It'd be so great to have you on board. Just give us a call. Plus six one, that's the Australian code, followed by my mobile number, 412-982-444. Why? Because we've just got to embrace this journey called life. Enjoy it, dear people, and just remember...